The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. I'm Jean Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new nonfiction books. My guest today is Christopher Bananos, whose book, Instant, The Story of Polaroid, has just been published by Princeton Architectural Press. It's a fascinating book, so thank you for coming into the Slate studio to talk with me. Great to be here. So one of the things that I loved about the book was the way that you really captured the wonderful happy feeling of instant Polaroid pictures. I don't have uh, one of their cameras from their heyday, but I got into them in the sort of iZone and Joycam end stage. And even though those were some of the worst of the Polaroid cameras, they were still really fun. Why do you think that Polaroid photos have the effect of bringing people together in a way that even digital cameras, which have in theory, the same kind of immediacy really don't. Well, I think what people discovered very fast about Polaroid photographs is that they promote a certain kind of sharing because you see them right away or almost right away. When a picture comes out of a camera and you can show it to that person as it develops, you're sharing a little moment. And then if you give that person the photo, you're handing over a gift. Yeah. And that is a striking sort of experience, especially because you're watching your own face come out of the mist or the person is watching his or her own face come out of the mist. And uh, it is especially powerful for little kids. That's Yeah. And, and you also mention in the book that while you're waiting, because there is this wait, you can also chat. And so you're, there's, a, again, that, another social element. There. That's right. You know, my son is three. And I take a lot of instant pictures of him, especially, you know, we go out to the playground and yeah. I catch him doing whatever he's doing. And often another parent is there. And if they ask about this weird old camera I'm toting around, I'll take a picture of their kid, hand it over while it develops. We chat a little. The kid is curious because he's never seen this weird old thing. I have had many bonding experiences. I've made a lot of friends that way. And I'm not the only one. That's so amazing. That's awesome. So the book is the history of the Polaroid company and its products. The company is very much the product of one man's philosophy and passion. That was Edwin Herbert Land. Tell us about him. Oh, there's a lot to tell about Land. He – his old employees talk about him uh, as one of the geniuses of his generation. And, you know, some of that may be a little bit hyperbolic, but I'm not so sure it was. He was a unique mind and a lot of uh, extraordinary people say there was no one like him. Mm. You know, he had this – uncanny ability to to invent on demand. He would have a, a, a principle or a product that they'd worked out in the labs and someone would come at them in some strange way with, a, with an idea that with – a, with a problem that could be solved using one of these things in an unusual application and he'd sit back and he'd think. During the war, the Second World War, I mean, a uh, general had called on him and said, listen, we're having this problem with bomb sites. And uh, we're not quite sure how to keep people focused. It's a complicated optical problem, which I won't go into. But um, essentially, they said, do you have a solution for this? And he said, I'll come down to Washington at the end of the week and show you what you can do. 
And the guy said, you have a solution? He said, no, but I will. Yeah. You talk about how he really believed that if you sat down, you would come up with a solution. And he had absolute faith in people's ability to think, which is something of a, a belief that is Very lost. unusual. The old employees all told me about his ability to concentrate. He once said that his entire career had been built around teaching people through intense concentration to bring out powers and abilities they never thought they had. And he himself made all sorts of long concentrated efforts in that direction. One of his old employees told me that she uh, she was a chemist mm-hmm. down in the Polaroid labs. And because she worked on photography, she had a dark room in her lab. And he would occasionally come down to her lab and say, can I just sit in the dark room for a while? And it was just so he could get away from the phone, get away from the assistants, get away from everybody who had questions for him about the business. And he could work through a problem in his head that required, you know, a hundred steps in order that you couldn't lose your place. So he'd sit there in the dark. She'd bring him a cup of soup, and he would sit there in the dark and work out whatever he needed to work out. From a childhood, he was obsessed with optics. Optics, and then he studied chemistry when he was at Harvard, uh, where he dropped out. You point out numerous parallels between land and Polaroid, and then things that happened to other companies at other times, but the most irresistible parallel is to Steve Jobs and Apple computers. I mean, the men in the companies really do have a lot in common, right? They do. It's remarkable. Both companies had that same uh, obsession with the perfect object and the perfect design. And in both cases, it came from the boss. Mm. Land wanted to produce a perfect object that felt good in the hand and was sort of incredibly intuitive to use. And we know Steve Jobs had those same books. (laughs) Heaven knows. They both said our company is built on the spot where art and technology meet. And in fact, Jobs said it because Land said it. Mm. He explicitly said that he had modeled Polaroid on Apple, uh, modeled Apple on Polaroid. He considered Land his first great hero. When Land was sort of nudged into retirement by Polaroid's board in the early 80s, Jobs gave an interview where he said, they're, you know, they're out of their minds. The man is a national treasure. Jobs made a couple of trips to Cambridge and sat across from Dr. Land and talked to him at length about the sort of philosophy of running a company, and they compared notes on the creation of SX-70, which was the signature Polaroid camera of the 70s, and the Macintosh, the first Macintosh. And they, they, they both described exactly the same experience, which was picturing this thing in your head, knowing what it had to be, as if and seeing it as if it were on the table before you, and then coaxing hundreds of people into making it an actual thing that came out of factories in great quantity. That's amazing, isn't it? So the Polaroid company was started, I'm sorry, in what year? Uh, It was founded in 1932 under a different name, and it became Polaroid in 1937. And then during the war was when the company really blossomed, I mean, because they had a lot of kind of wartime work for the army. They did. You know, it was, it was not founded as a company that made instant photographs. The first 10 years or so were devoted to commercializing another product entirely, which was the sheet polarizer. That is, if you don't know, a filter that channels light in one plane but not another. And so if you cross two of these filters, you black out the light. If you put them in parallel, they allow most of the light through. And by turning one over the other, you made a very finely calibrated valve. And this sounds a little arcane, but it has a jillion applications, everything from sunglasses to glare control in automobiles to uh, liquid crystal displays. Every pixel Mm -hmm. in your flat TV works that way. The liquid is charged and 
twists. That's uh, you see LCD twist as a term sometimes. It works on the same principle wow. eighty years later. Uh, so anyway, a lot of that went into war work: bomb sites, night flying goggles, uh-huh. all sorts of optics products for aerial reconnaissance. And the company took off. It went from a couple hundred thousand dollars in annual revenues to 16 million during the war. But then, because almost the success was a concern for land, because the company had boomed so much, to the, as, as you just said, mm-hmm. and because he was very committed to his employees, he was sounded like he was worried that he wouldn't be able to keep up that amount of business that they'd had in the war. That's right. It was going to have to contract. You know the war contracts were going to go away. They were yeah. they were um, they were doing a lot of work for the Department of Defense. It was clear by, you know, 1944 or so that the war was going to wind down in a year or so. I mean, it, who knew when? But right. it was going to. It, we, it looked like we were going to win it, <laughs> and then they were going to stop making war material. So essentially, he had a company that was, uh, I think the figure is 87 percent dependent on wow. defense contracts, which were all going to stop. So. He had to do something, and the best idea he had came along at the end of 1943. Land was on vacation with his family, taking a very short break because he was very, very hard. He was one of those guys you couldn't get him to go on vacation. He worked 20 hours a day. Uh, But he did go out to uh, the southwest with his family. He was taking pictures of his daughter, and she looked up at him and said, Why can't I see the picture now? And he said, Well. (laughs) And the story goes that he sent his little girl to be with her mother, and he spent the next few hours pacing the resort, working it out in his head. And the crazy detail that just makes this click into place is that Polaroid's patent attorney happened to be in Santa Fe <laughs> on a separate vacation. They weren't in the same place. And he called him up and he said, I'm coming over. And he spent the night dictating. And that was the outlines of the instant photography system that built the whole company. He imagined instant photography. He made it work. And one of the things that I just sort of want to take a moment to, to just talk about was what a big deal it was. You know, many people alive today will really only have had an experience of digital photography and the immediacy that brings. But in 1947, it really was a big deal to have instant photography. Oh, it was a, it was a rocket ship ride, yeah. you got to remember that unless you were a newspaper photographer with a darkroom back at the office or a serious hobbyist with one in your basement, you know, chances are if you were taking pictures, maybe if you lived in a big city like New York, you had a lab somewhere nearby. But chances are if you lived in you know, I don't know, Kansas City somewhere, what you did was put your film in a little envelope and you mail it back to Eastman Kodak. You would get your photos back in a week. Mm. And here was this thing that gave it to you in a minute. And, you know, it makes all the difference at that level because especially when you're learning to take pictures, you know, you shoot a whole roll of film and you screw it up. (laughs) And you get it back and you've paid whatever, you know, $12 and it's no good. And you don't know exactly what you did wrong because the moment's gone. And if it was your child's first Christmas, Mm -hmm. you don't have any pictures of it. So here was this thing that came along that allowed you to take pictures right away, uh, to see your pictures right away and correct before the moment went away. You know, if it was Christmas morning, you could open up the lens or change the exposure setting or do whatever you needed to do and keep taking pictures on the spot. 
So let's pause for a moment to give away some books. But first, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal. Instant isn't available on Audible for the moment, at least, but Throughout the book, Chris makes irresistible comparisons between Edwin Land, the tech genius founding father of Polaroid, and Apple's Steve Jobs, as we've been discussing. So anyone who's taken with the Polaroid story might well be interested in Walter Isaacson's biography of Jobs, which is one of the more than 100,000 books available on Audible, and it's read by the great Dylan Baker. To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download Steve Jobs or one of the other books available on Audible, go to Audible Podcast com slash afterword. If you use that URL, the afterword will get the credit. That's audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. Now, Princeton Architectural Press has very kindly given us three copies of Instant to give away to listeners, and Chris has signed them. If you would like one, and I should just say it's a beautiful looking book, please send an email with the words instant giveaway in the subject line to slateafterward at gmail.com by 11.59pm Eastern Time on Friday, October 19th, 2012, and we'll choose three winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address, and if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterward at gmail.com. I'm talking with Christopher Bananos, author of the new book, Instant. So, Chris, as we've been sitting here, I've noticed on the table in front of us, there's this amazing piece of, well, I don't know what you, amazing piece of architecture almost. It's a, it's a, a striking piece of industrial design. And what is it? This is an SX-70 camera. Ah, and, so this uh, is the great one. It's, it, this is the one that Land considered his finest achievement, uh, sort of the, the apotheosis of his idea of one-step instant photography. I wish I could show it to you. It doesn't really work <laughs> on a podcast. But uh, I will say that the, the striking thing about it is it is uh, finished in real leather and brushed chrome. And when it folds down into a flat little object, it is just barely bigger than the pack of film that goes inside. Mm-hmm. And what is especially striking is that it is a single-lens reflex, which if you're a photographer, you know is uh, what you want because your view through the eyepiece goes through the lens rather than just through a viewfinder. So you see what your piece of film is going to see. And to do that in this small package was an absolutely heroic piece of engineering for 1972 especially. And so now that's 40 years old and yes. it seems in perfect condition. So that's another sign that it was beautifully made, although I'm sure you've also taken very good care of it. Uh, they do hold up nicely. I mean, I've seen some that have been, you know, well, le- let's say well-loved. Yes. And, uh, and they do suffer if you drop on the sidewalk or something because mm. although they, are, they look like they're made out of brushed stainless steel, there is uh, a plastic frame underneath and you can crack it. So they are cameras. They are delicate. You can yeah, kill them, yeah. but um, they're they're beautifully made. Well, since you brought it out and it's such an amazing object, I'm going to ask you about something that I was going to say mm-hmm. till later. As most people will know, Polaroid has gone through. Oh God, you just Chris just turned it around. I'm looking at the front of it; it's even more gorgeous. Several people have tried to to keep the film alive to to just allow people to keep taking a sort of version of Polaroid pictures, but I imagine that it's now extremely expensive. That's the way 
I imagine it to be. Is it, in fact? Uh, it's a lot more expensive than it used to be in some ways, yes. There, there are a number of different ways you can still take an instant picture. Fujifilm of Japan still makes its own line of instant cameras and instant film. The film's very good. The cameras are sort of mass market. They, mm. have, uh, they have okay lenses, and they're, they're not bad. They're not like the best Polaroid cameras were, but you can take a decent picture with one of them. Fuji also makes some of the very old-style film that you peel apart, where you mm. pull a tab from the camera and then reveal the picture after uh, a few moments. And that is used in many professional backs. You know, you can put a Polaroid back on your Hasselblad or some very expensive camera. Mm. As for these, for SX-70 and the 600 cameras, which are the ones that scream Polaroid to most people. That's the one where the picture spits out the front with the white frame and the tab yeah. at the bottom. That film went away when Polaroid stopped manufacturing it in 2008 and 2009. And two somewhat eccentric guys in Holland, one of whom was the plant manager at Polaroid's European factory, bought that factory uh, about 48 hours before the machinery was to be scrapped. Mm. They dived in at the last minute, and they saved it from demolition. Uh, they, they bought the machinery and rented the building. And they uh, have spent the last two or th three years now gradually reintroducing it to the market. You know, they made some test batches mm. at the beginning, which were, you know, you, you were rooting for them, but the first film was uh, somewhat unstable. It was mm. somewhat tricky to shoot. It was difficult. You know, you want them to succeed. Right. And I will tell you that the latest batches of film look like Polaroid film. It is not exactly the same to shoot. It's slower to develop, and there were other, you know, smaller issues at hand. But it is fundamentally working now, which is um, remarkable. You know, the company, as I said, is called The Impossible Project. <laughs> and uh, there's a reason for that. Making an instant picture that develops out in the light is crazy, crazy chemistry. Yeah. And even with the head start of a factory that could assemble film packets and make, make sheets, mm. they didn't have any of the ingredients. And many of the ingredients are not gettable anymore. Either Polaroid made them itself in giant lots, and they don't have those factories. They just have the assembly. They did not have the chemistry suppliers that Polaroid bought its chemistry from. And many of those made these crazy chemicals that only Polaroid used. Yeah. So they stopped making them years ago when Polaroid quit. And they weren't about to start again for this small batch, you know, artisanal, artisanal instant yes. filmmaker, <laughs> for lack of a better term. So essentially what Impossible had to do was start over within the framework of uh, the camera and the film size and yeah. like that and reinvent instant film anew, which is an exotic thing to try to do in 2010 yeah. when the world has moved largely to digital. Exactly. But they have, they have the bug worse than I do. It was a passion and a mission and that they have done it is remarkable. I'm going to bring us back to the, I don't know, the early, but the, maybe the glory days of Polaroid, let's just say. The photos, as you say, the gratification was immediate, but also for some consumers, there was the benefit that it didn't require processing. And so they became the camera of choice for what you might call bedroom shots. For something a little more private, yes. Yeah. You know, we don't know exactly who figured that out, but we know that they did it right away. <laughs> there, there's a long history of inventions being given a huge boost by, uh, you know, porn or right. sexy pictures. The VCR, the VCR right? that yeah. made it absolutely in the late 70s. The whole, I mean, it changed the world of adult video, adult film, you know. Um, you didn't have to go to some scummy theater anymore. Yeah. 
the internet itself. My gosh, you remember the early days of the internet. Right. All those news stories saying, you know, this is the thing that took off like right. nothing else and right. allowing people to see stuff at home that they wouldn't have been able to otherwise. So too it was with Polaroid. Uh, you know, the Kinsey Institute has on file uh, a scholar who's been there tells me many early Polaroid photographs. As I said, the camera system was introduced in 1947 and went on sale the following year. And some of these pictures are from as early as, you know, 1950 or so. People figured it out very fast. There are early Betty Page pictures that are Polaroid and all sorts of fun stuff. Now, another thing that always struck me about Polaroid photos, as you said, it was different from sending away your film and taking at least a week. You had the photos pretty much immediately. There were no negatives for the most part, and so you couldn't reproduce them. I'm very aware of these days, it seems like every week I hear of someone who's had some kind of technological or data problem and has lost, you know, I lost all the photos of my kids. But that's an odd aspect of Polaroid, right, that it's a very physical object. It's very true. It's sort of the flip side of, you know, if you're a hard drive crash, you can lose everything in Polaroid land. Uh, You know, you have one flood and you lose everything or a fire or something. But what is unique about Polaroid photography or pretty close to unique is that, as you say, the, the original is the print which goes back in some ways to the very earliest days of photography, you know, when you were doing it on a glass plate or something, yeah. daguerreotype. Everyone is, as I always say, an addition of one. The object is the thing, and that does something, sort of spiritually, if you like, mm. because the photo becomes really precious. You know, when you have a file stored in the cloud and your picture is all ones and zeros, you can get it back. Yeah. I mean, as long as you have a backup, yeah. you can get it for the rest of your life. You can zing it anywhere in the world at a moment's notice. It, can, it It's everywhere. Mm. And I might add that you shoot 100 a day, if, if you, especially if you have a little kid the way I do. Right. You know, your camera phone, you snap all the time. If you're an yeah. Instagram person, you're documenting your whole life. Bing, 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 all day long. Every Polaroid picture costs you. And everyone is, it's an object. And so if you have it in your hand, that's the only one. The striking thing to me is that when you take a Polaroid picture, that picture was there that day. So if you take a picture of your grandmother, the light that bounced off your grandmother went through the lens, reflected onto the film, and exposed that film. And then that piece of film comes out, and that's your picture. It touched her. Yeah in a way that your digital file did not. And in fact, the light that reflected off her face is sort of, in a certain way, trapped in that print. The fact that the picture was there that day, if you took a picture of the president, it was in his hand or right in front of him. As you say, it was in the room. You get a sense of where you were, of what you were doing, of what the conversation was before you brought out your camera. Absolutely true. And when people are gone, you know, as I said, it's a picture of your grandmother and you have it 50 years later, you remember being that day with her because the object was in your hand that day and it's still there in your album or your frame or on your desk or... Well, let me just ask you about that, because as I said, I had a great deal of fun with Polaroid cameras at the end stage, when the film wasn't at its peak, they were very cheap, and the photos haven't lasted, but you have made me realize, you said that that was an aberration, that actually they were very high quality prints that where the color has stayed the same, and they had a bit of a bad reputation. And it's true. What what started to happen, actually, the film never got bad. It was the cameras. What happened in the 70s, beginning in the 70s and going on through the next 20 years, it's a piece of the decline of Polaroid, although it's not the whole story, was that there was a shift within the company from being an idea factory that outsourced a lot of its manufacturing 
to being a company that made consumer products and especially made film by the ton and the truckload because it was such a good moneymaker. You know, they had their own format and their own factories, and the profit margin was very high. Mm -hmm. uh, you remember, I'm sure, that shooting Polaroid film was not the cheapest way to right. take pictures. You were paying somewhat for the instant quality and for the convenience. And so because that profit margin was so good, as the years went on, Polaroid got more and more built around selling film. And to do that, they began pumping out inexpensive cameras. Yeah. Okay. And those cameras made okay pictures, but often not great ones. Mm. And as 35mm photography started to get better and better, and those cameras started to get better and better and cheaper and cheaper, especially from Japan, those inexpensive Polaroid cameras made pictures that didn't really measure up. Yeah. And you could make better Polaroid pictures if you had one of these things, like I'm showing you here. An yeah. SX-70 makes very, very fine pictures. But out of the basic plastic box camera, you got okay ones. And for a medium that already had a reputation for being a little gimmicky, that was dangerous because it led to a perception that the pictures weren't very good, that it was a toy. Yeah. And long-term, that was damaging. Your book has really fascinating, in-depth, without being lost in the weeds, discussion of the fate of the company. We're a little tight for time, so mm -hmm. just going to ask you about <laughs> the saddest part of, of the company's history, really the end, right. but specifically about when Edwin Land left the company in 1982. It was the start of the decline, it seems, but was his departure the reason for that decline? Well, it's an oversimplification to say it was never the same without Land. Because yeah. they did some very smart things after him and they did some things not so well. But what was unmistakably true is that, it, as I said, the company had been an idea factory before yeah. that. Every new product was based on something fundamentally new. You know, SX-70 superseded the old peel-apart thing and it was completely different chemistry and it was, it was an extraordinary notion that you'd have a picture that came out of the camera dry, no peeling, no timing. You just put it down and did what it needed to do in one little flat packet. No one had ever done anything like that before. In the late 70s, Land came out with the next generation, which was to be, it was a system called Polavision, and it was to be instant movie film. And it was introduced in 1977, and it flopped. It was just clobbered by the VCR and, uh, the, and, the, and the Betamax video recorder. He had, for the first time, misjudged what people wanted to buy. And suddenly his board thought we've been through this so many times and every time he's been right he's put us put the company through this perfectionist rigor of bringing out this crazy new product that cost way too much to develop and every time it worked and this time it didn't work so people began to wonder mm, you know he's he's getting old i wonder if he may not be the idea machine that he once was so uh, it's a little more complicated than that yeah. but broadly speaking he was nudged into retirement they 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 started squeezing budgets on him and doing mm. things and he said you know what i'm out of here and as i said his successors did some things right did some things not so right but what's certainly true is that they never really had a giant fresh idea again. Mm. They mm. tried because they had prototypes for digital cameras in the lab, and they had prototypes for inkjet printers. They almost got into the inkjet printer business, which is sort of heartbreaking because they could have been what Hewlett Packard was in the right. 1990s, right. and instead they just kept making film. The final question I have for you is about the company's long history with artists who, you know, at this point perhaps again it seems well natural that a camera company would have 
close relationships with artists, but it wasn't that normal before Polaroid came along, right? Well, Kodak always had an artist mm. program, to be sure. But, you know, in the early days of Polaroid photography, as I said, there was a, there was a sort of hint around the edges that this thing was a gimmick, that it mm. wasn't for serious picture-taking. And the solution to that was ingenious. Land signed up Ansel Adams as his top consultant. They met at an optics conference, and they got on really well. Land was a scientist who thought about art and color and light, mm. and Adams was an artist who thought a lot about technology. If you look at his books on photography, some of it is about catching a perfect scene, but mm -hmm. most of it is about uh, exposure settings. <laughs> he really cared about the technology of photography and, ma and making his prints as good as they could uh. possibly be. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he and Land had lots to talk about, and Land took his picture in those early days and then signed him up as a consultant. In the early days, it was 100 bucks a month. Mm -hmm. Adams began to give it legitimacy, and also he talked it up to many, many other artists, and you know, everyone embraced Polaroid at, in some way or other. Some people just for tests, but really, Andy Warhol loved Polaroid and Robert Maplethorpe loved Polaroid yeah. and um, David Hockney loved right, Polaroid. They, right. they all made great pictures on Polaroid film. Some of those great Adams landscapes, the ones that you'd never in a million years think of as uh, snapshots, mm -hmm. are made on professional large format instant film. And it led to the company having an amazing art collection, right? Oh my gosh, yes. A lot of those people and hundreds of others had deals whereby Polaroid would send them all the film they wanted in return for a few pictures for the art collection. And uh, they ended up with probably the world's greatest, certainly in private hands, mm -hmm. a collection of photography. There was a lot of ugliness a few mm -hmm. years ago when um, the bankruptcy court sold off a portion of that collection at Sotheby's piece by piece because a lot of the artists who were still around said, hold on, I gave it to them with the understanding that they were going to keep it, not that it was going to be sold off to some mm -hmm. collector. So there was, uh, there was a lot of question over who owned copyrights and things like that. We can't get away from the sadness of well, the Well, I'll tell you something that is nice, which is that uh, in 2009, after the second bankruptcy, Polaroid was sold again. And it was bought by two venture capital groups. And although, I mean, it's not the old days. You know, at its yeah. peak, it had 20,000 employees, and now it has dozens. But I will say that these guys understand what they bought, and they have introduced a few interesting products. You know, just, I think it was last week, week before, they introduced a, a very small digital camera that has a tiny printer inside oh. using a technology called Zinc that was developed in the Polaroid labs and then spun off and they license it back. And, you know, if you want a print in the field from a digital camera that does some of the things that a Polaroid picture did, you know, it's not the same as film. It doesn't yeah. look like film. There are, there, there are certain film snobs who say it'll never be the same, you know, <laughs> but it serves many of the same functions yeah, yeah. and it is a, an interesting and uh, an interesting technology that does some of the same sharing. Yeah. It is like an old Polaroid camera was, an awfully fun thing to have at a party. That was Christopher Bananos, whose new book, Instant, The Story of Polaroid, is available in bookstores now. Thank you so much, Chris. Great to be here. Thanks again. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterward at gmail.com. Our engineer was Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm Jean Thomas. <laughs>